The Way Out Podcast, episode 306. What is your name? My name is Matt J. Matt J. What was your substance of choice or DOC? Mostly alcohol. Uh, I tried other things, pain pills at times when I had a prescription. And if I could have gotten past the fact that it was a prescription and I would think of myself as a drug addict, I would have gotten hooked on pain pills, mm. but mostly alcohol. Alcohol was my first love as well and ended up being my downfall. Oh, yeah. But like you, I experimented and maybe Matt more than experimented with other substances and behaviors. What is your clean and or sober date? March 21st, 2014. Congratulations, brother. That oh, is you. what I would call meaningful sobriety. Doesn't feel like it. I still feel like a new guy. <laughs> That's probably good. If we feel like we've got this thing licked, I think we're probably in trouble. Now, I know a lot of old timers got the 30, 40 years and yeah. the longer I stay around them, the newer I feel. Leaves <laughs> me open to learning things still. So that's a good way to be. Yeah. How do you serve the recovery community, Matt? I would say I'll lead with, I do my own podcast, just like you, spreading the message, the Sober Friends podcast. Been doing that since November of 2020. And started that because I saw all of these people not being able to find recovery because of the pandemic. Pandemic became a big game changer. And I knew some people who got sober during the pandemic and I just couldn't figure out how they did it because I would have been scared to go to Zoom or not know what to do. So that's where it started. I have to tell you, although I'd say it's something that helps the community, it helps me more. I found over time, it got me more connected. I found the same thing, brother. It's been one of the biggest blessings of my recovery is being part of the Way Out podcast and meeting fellow folks in long-term recovery and fellow recovery podcasters. I learn something every time I'm able to sit down and have a great discussion with another human in recovery. Matt, what does recovery mean to you? I think what recovery means to me is it has a lot less to do with not drinking. It has to do with not drinking and being happy and functional. Actually, I wouldn't even say that. Most of the time, happy, functional, being able to get through life without having any problems. That's a good question. I'm having a hard time articulating that. But it's being able to deal with life on life's terms without having to have a drink. There are bad things that are going to happen. So if you think you're going to get sober and everything's going to be peaches and cream, that's not how it's going to be. What's going to happen is you're going to have awful days, awful weeks, awful extended periods of time, and you'll have the tools to get through it. Life will still get lifey. And recovery has given me the tools and the skills to be able to live life on life's terms and get through those times without having to resort to a substance or a behavior to hit that proverbial eject button. And when I get through something for the first time, 
in recovery. It gives me increasing confidence that I can get through other things that are difficult and other adversity, right? Oh yeah. It's, it's just having those tools, having the resources, having the people. When things are going bad for me, I know where to go. There's always a place to go. I can always find a place to be around like-minded people. And be reminded of the solution. Oh yeah. And I get to develop increasing competence in these new tools and these new skills. And I continue to act on these new skills and these new tools, which eventually begins to rewire my brain, right? And one of my favorite recovery sayings is, I can't think my way into right living. I have to act my way into right thinking. Oh, that's a great one. Action is so important. Even if it's like, I've got all these thoughts, I got to put it down on a piece of paper to actually do them. It's good to set goals, but it's good to set recovery goals. Getting a piece of paper and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to go out to a meeting more than what I'm doing now. And I'm going to do that on Friday night and write it down. That's the first action. Then get in your car and go there and do something or write down and say, I'm going to go have coffee with people who I know are in recovery more often because I need to be around that. That's, that's, I have a lot of great thoughts. I'm not always good at putting them into action. This is a great reminder. No doubt about it. And that action is what then provides a meaningful recovery. It's based mm -hmm. on the actions. It's not based on what's in between the two ears here. It's based on the things I do on a regular basis that result in a meaningful and enduring sobriety. Now you're reminding me that I got to get out my notepad and write <laughs> some things down, such as start calling people more often. Oh man, isn't that the thing, you yep. know? It, it, we're great isolators, right? Oh, I love to isolate. I'm an <laughs> introvert by nature. So you I would I prefer both. not to be bothered by anyone. <laughs> you and I both, Matt, you and I both, I love it. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. 
Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, I'm beyond excited to bring you my interview with fellow recovery podcaster and person in long-term recovery, Matt J. Matt shares his journey to and through recovery to this point with a remarkable forthrightness and with the unmistakable tenor of someone that takes his program of recovery and his sobriety seriously and at the same time of a man that doesn't take himself too seriously, which in many respects is what we're all after in recovery. Matt and I had a fantastic time as he regaled his recovery story, and then we launched into a lively discussion that traversed the proverbial sobriety waterfront, from 12-step history to the value of multiple recovery pathways, as well as the value of both in-person and virtual recovery meetings. And last, but certainly not least, the tremendous value of recovery podcasts like the way out podcast and the sober friends podcast so listen up matt j thank you so much brother for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the way out podcast you are a fellow recovery podcaster with the sober friends podcast you are a person in long-term recovery and you're here with us and i couldn't be happier about it we're going to talk about your journey to and through recovery to this point we're going to talk about the sober friends podcast before we dig into any of that brother why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the way out podcast audience tell us a little bit about yourself where you're from and we'll get started yeah i that sounds almost sexy last last for lack of a better term man in long-term recovery i still don't look at myself that way in my first three six months somebody came up to me and said you know you're a newcomer until you hit 10 years and i put that in the back of my head but i'm getting there if i get there one day at a time i'll be i'll be grateful i'm from south windsor connecticut it's just outside of hartford so i'm an east coast guy i know you guys are midwesterners indeed so I know you, I'm sorry you like the twins. <laughs> <laughs> I am a diehard twins fan. Yeah. Good times in 1987. And 91. Don't and forget nine, about right, 91. That was the greatest World Series ever. <laughs> hey, you're asking about me. I mean, where, how far into the story do you want me to go now? Tell me 
what it was like for you growing up. What was family of origin like? Talk a little bit about that and then we'll uh, take it from there. Oh, it, it sucked. It sucked growing up. I was listening to another podcaster who does adult children of alcoholics, which I definitely qualify for. And it's been suggested to me. And this person said, you know, I, if I had to do it all over again, I would still go through this experience. And I'm like, honestly, I wouldn't. Mm. If I could avoid what I grew up with, I wouldn't want to do it. Mm. My father was a hardcore alcoholic. He beat up my mom. My mom had drinking issues. My stepfather drank alcoholically. So there was physical abuse early on in my life. And then there was that verbal and mental abuse later on in my life. Yeah. I lived in pretty poor town, West Springfield, the poor end of town. We lived in my uncle's second floor of his two family home and we didn't have a lot. I didn't realize it at the time, but I remember standing in line for food stamps not having any brothers or sisters, not having a father around, which was different, but mm. it, for me, it was what the norm was. I had grandparents, cousins around, but I always felt like we were the redheaded stepchildren of the family. Mm. I found out later there was a lot of resentment towards my mother by other members of the family, and they would take it out on me. Mm. To give you an example, we go over to my aunt's house, and every time my uncle would uh, greet me as the hemorrhoid. It took me a while to figure out what a hemorrhoid was. And right. Said, oh, the hemorrhoid is here. And that's how I was greeted. Wow. My grandfather would swim in the pool quite a bit underwater. And I was impressed as a young kid, anybody who can do like, and even an above ground pool, one or two laps underwater. That's, that's impressive. And I asked him like, how do you do that? He goes, Oh, I breathe underwater. You should try it. I must've been five years old. I mean, this is, this is how, my family used to treat us. I, I had relatives who would accidentally on purpose burn me with their cigarette. I had, there was just tons of people in the family who had alcohol issues. And, and it sounds like anger issues. Yes. A lot of anger issues in this family. And I always felt less than yeah. we, we ended up moving out of West Springfield so that my mother could put me in a better school system. And we moved to a better town. Wilbraham, which was a really well-to-do town, but we were poor. So we lived in apartments in a very wealthy town. I had no brothers and sisters, didn't have a father around. That was abnormal for everybody else. I remember the worst day of school was the first day when you had to fill out forms and write all the stuff down around your parents, their contact information. I could never put anything from my father because I didn't know where he was. And one time the teacher gave it back to me. You know, well, that's your dad. You must know this information. You didn't fill it out correctly. Go, go and fill in the dots. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where he is. I don't know his phone number. I don't know his address. And it was horrifying and yeah. so embarrassing. Yeah. And I felt like I was the only one like that. I can definitely tell you, I probably was an alcoholic before I was an alcoholic because I had a friend in high school who gave me the idea that we could go to Toys R Us and get rubber cement and huff it, and we would get high. Mm. Now, we never did, but I remember thinking that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. You have to have an addict mind if you hear somebody say that and not say, you're insane. Why would you suggest that? Why would you want to do something like that? I thought, that's a great idea. Let's go. 
if we can just get down to Toys R Us, I'm down. And this was before I had a drop of alcohol in me. So it was, it was hard. I was not popular. I did not fit in. I wasn't super athletic. I just, everything about me felt wrong. I just didn't feel like I fit in in any way. And I was definitely an isolator. My mom died when I was 11 years old. All I remember throughout the rest of my elementary, middle and high school years is everybody else had a mom and I didn't. People would go to the store or they'd go here or a sporting event or special events, especially. And mom and dad would be there. And uh, for years, it was just it was my dad. And I was the kid whose mom died. And that's a tough way to have to grow up and feel like you're the only one going through that. Now, I wasn't, but I felt like it. Mm. And I could relate with being one of the poorest kids in a fairly wealthy community, too. You know, after my mom died, we didn't have nothing. And my dad went into debt up to his eyeballs to try to just stay in the house and try to get by. And feeling like you're about the poorest kid in a wealthy community is a unique experience as well, is it not? Oh, yeah. And financial insecurity has been with me ever since. Anytime there is a money crunch, I start thinking I'm going to go back to that. We're going to go back to that two family in West Springfield above my uncle. Yeah. Everything is gone. This is finally it. Mm. It's caught up with me. Mm -hmm. Those are those fears Mm. that we acquire as a part of our upbringing and growing up with a alcoholic mom and alcoholic family members. And as you mentioned, the adult children of alcoholics anonymous, it's that experience. As I've been told, it's been related to me of constantly walking on eggshells. Yes, absolutely. That's a great analogy because you totally identify terrified that you're going to, trigger somebody oh yeah yeah there were things we don't talk about yeah and i remember my grandmother passed away in 1989 and for years my mother would refer to my grandmother in the present tense and i just it was so uncomfortable to me wow clearly there's some issues of accepting and grief and loss that she would refer to you know well ma makes this and ma does this and it was uncomfortable to hear no, she doesn't because she's gone. Mm-hmm. And we don't mm-hmm. talk about mom. We don't talk about this situation and we don't talk about these people. And you talk about being an alcoholic before you were an alcoholic. I could totally mm-hmm. relate to that because my dad always said I had the quickest hand of the cookie jar. In that penchant for overindulging and going oh, yeah. into excess on things that felt good was there for me from the very beginning. And I always believed that I was born with big addicted alcoholic switches and they were just bound to get tripped at some point, right? And when I was eight, it was cookies, right? And when I was 11, after my mom died, it was all of the cookies and I became the fat kid and, you know, was tormented in school because of it and endured a lot of, torture from bullying in my middle school years because I found comfort in food. 
and then the first drink came. You talk about, you know, having your first drink, what, pretty early for you? I don't think so. It was later than most people. It was about 16. Okay. Yeah. And most people at that point that I knew had already drank. So I knew I had alcoholic people in my family and that I probably shouldn't. And it was always in my head, I'm not going to become an alcoholic. And I got upset at my mother about something. Don't even remember what it was, but it decided I knew some people who were going to be drinking. And I said, I'll get you my money. You get me something too. It was one of these situations where somebody would drive into Springfield, pay a guy to go into the liquor store and we got what we got. And that night I got a 40 of Budweiser. And I don't really remember being drunk. I remember, I don't know what this feeling is that I'm looking for. Mm. It took a while, but when I found the feeling, then I could knew when I was getting drunk. And I remember very early on that I saw an empty bottle of beer somewhere. And I said, I cannot understand why anybody would just drink one beer what would be the point of that? What are you going to feel <laughs> after one beer? 16, 17 years old. There would be periods of time that I didn't drink for months because I just couldn't get the booze. Right. But I would think about it all the time yeah. for months. Yeah. yeah. So because of your family dynamics, you stayed away from it for maybe longer than some others. Yes. But once you imbibed, game on? Yeah, I felt like I belonged. Once I had that feeling, I had some confidence. There were things that I could do. Maybe I could talk to girls. Maybe I could be with the group. I could have my inhibitions down and I could tell my jokes. I could be more of me by drinking. And it immediately became that crutch. And I didn't think of it as a crutch, but I could totally relate to that because the first time I drank and got drunk, it unlocked things in me, Matt, that I was not able to unlock prior to that. Hell yeah. I became confident. All my fear and anxiety vanished. I could stick up to the guys and flirt with the girls and was the life of the party. I loved it. I loved being that guy. And I couldn't be that guy without a number of drinks in me. And once I had a number of drinks in me, I didn't want to stop. And I learned relatively quickly that I couldn't. I don't know if it. Here's the thing. I always surrounded myself with people who drank more than me, which made it easy to say they have a problem, but not me. But it never occurred to me that I couldn't stop. I just felt that when people started drinking, that's what everybody's response was. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me I that know. this was a problem. I know that this must be how everybody feels. And I'm still to this day, I accept that my drinking was abnormal, but I have no empathy or understanding for people who have like half a glass of wine then put it down and say, I don't I'm get done. It. I don't get it. Have milk, have water. Like, what are we doing? Yeah, exactly. My wife used to do that. We'd split a bottle of wine. She'd have a couple sips. I'd drink the bottle. Right. <laughs> and it would just, I couldn't understand how she could stop because if I was in a position where I could stop, where I, I, I needed more and more, then everybody must be the same way. I absolutely felt the same. I didn't know that everybody didn't feel the exact same way I did when they drank. I thought we all felt like this. Mm. I thought that when we drank, we feel amazing. 
And we feel like we are at one with ourselves in the universe and at our pinnacle as humans. And the reality is that's not the case for most people. And I didn't learn that until I was listening to Joe and Charlie in the very beginning. And they were explaining most people don't feel like that when they drink. And it blew my mind. That's when it blew my mind, too. <laughs> Joe and Charlie. So we got that in common. I yeah. listened to a ton of Joe and Charlie. That's amazing. It was a transformational experience for me to listen to Joe and Charlie. And to understand so much about myself as an alcoholic and an addict, but also understand more about what it's like for people who don't have a problem with alcohol that are not alcoholic. And that was perhaps just as enlightening as the things I learned about myself. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard the story on Joe and Charlie about the guy in the airplane with the little swizzle stick and twirling and twirling and twirling. I don't get it, but there's other things in how I operate that I eat alcoholically. Uh, I drink soda alcoholically. I can drink coffee alcoholically. hundred percent. hundred percent. If I like it and it feels good, I'm likely to overdo it. It's just the reality for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember as a kid, we would go to the Cape and we'd go to these seafood restaurants and they'd give you this giant plate of fish filet and I would just eat until I was in pain. And so I had those alcoholic tendencies there with food. I just eat and eat and eat. We went into Springfield when I was in high school and they had this biggest pancake breakfast in the world thing every single year. And I found coffee there and I drank enough coffee to get high and then like crashed afterwards. Even without booze, I was finding ways to open up that pleasure center. Absolutely. Hit those dopamines. Okay, so tell me how it progresses for you then. So this is a good question. I don't... I'm trying to think about how, how that happens. I drank in college quite a bit, got in quite a bit of trouble, ended up with alcohol poisoning and in the hospital. That was probably the closest I got to dying. It just became a case where I almost failed out of college because of alcohol. And then I reined it in. I got upset because I got pulled in in college because I was an academic probation. It was a Christian brother school and the Christian brother was standing up there. And I looked around at the people and I'm like, this is not me. And then the brothers started saying, you know, you got to get a 2.0 to stay in school. Some of you might even get like a 2.1 or a 2.3. And I found it so condescending and got pissed off that I said, screw you. I'm getting a 3.0. And I did the rest of the way. And I was able to kind of compartmentalize it. I had to wake up bright and early. I went to every class. I did the work. If I was going out, I put limits on it. So I started running at that time, doing sit-ups. If I went out and drank, I had to do a certain amount of minutes of exercise after I had drank. So I, I put, I could put some limits on it. And I had friends there who were pretty hardcore alcoholics and I could point towards them. 
Mm-hmm. So I had limits, but this is when I started drinking by myself mm-hmm. that I moved from the bars to drinking at home, because if I was drinking at home, I didn't have to worry about being out. I could save money. I didn't get a DUI. So after college, I really just started drinking by myself and drinking in secret. Managing it. Yeah. And being- I didn't drink in the morning, didn't drink during the day. But I would drink at certain times. I tried being to keep functional to around it. I thought it was functional. Yeah. I could relate. After my girlfriend at the time, early 20s, got pregnant with my first child. I also was able to rein it in and able to, quote, unquote, manage it and didn't drink to excess every night and wasn't drinking in the morning. And But I wanted to. And I thought about it a lot and I substituted it with other things and other behaviors and food. And so it was like addiction whack-a-mole. I would overeat. I would binge eat. There was just this addiction whack-a-mole. And if I could keep alcohol sort of at bay, other things sprouted up that became unmanageable. Can you relate to that? I can absolutely relate to that. So once I got into adulthood after college, uh, met the woman who I ended up marrying and I could, well, so, so something else came into the picture too, which was antidepressants. And I found mm-hmm. I didn't drink as much with the antidepressant. I found out after the fact that mixing alcohol and antidepressants is incredibly dangerous yeah. and I could have set myself up for a seizure. But what I tried to do is think about, am I going to drink in this circumstance or am I not going to drink in this circumstance? And it constantly became this tug of war in my head. And I didn't, when I first found recovery and I I compared myself to the other people, there were people who had, you know, they got sober bleeding from their ears and their eyes and their mouths. And that wasn't me. So I almost felt like my chair was, I didn't, I didn't earn it. And I spoke once and told my story. And some woman came up to me, well put together, wealthy woman with a little Gucci bag. And she comes over. She goes, dear Lord, you had it horrible. I'm like, really? How? The level of mental torment you had was unbelievable. You and she repeated back, you know, I'm going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm going to have one beer. I can have one beer. Well, I'm going to stop. I want to have another beer. Maybe I'll have a second one. No, I'm not going to have a second one. Maybe I'll wait till later. She goes, that type of emotional and psychological tug of war and pain must have been awful. And I stood back. I'm like, wow, I never thought about that because I could go out somewhere and have one beer, drink it slow. Matter of fact, my drink when I really was worried about driving was Guinness because I found out that Guinness had a, had low alcohol. Mm. It's not something people know, but it's one of the lowest alcohol beers. No wonder I didn't like it very much. I, Cause I'd always heard that it's high alcohol, but I <laughs> yeah. learned, but you know, non-alcoholics don't sit there and say, okay, let me look through the list of, of beers and figure out which is the beer that has the lowest amount of alcohol or the highest and I'm going to choose that because then I can have a little more to stretch it out. <laughs> oh, man. That's oh, insanity. Man. No doubt. All of what you said resonates with me so much, Matt. And it goes back to to Joe and Charlie when mm. they give the analogy about not having a problem with strawberries. 
I don't think about how many strawberries I'm going to have and I'm going to just have one strawberry now and then I'll wait and have another strawberry later. And as long as I only have two strawberries a day, I don't have a problem with strawberries. The same is true with people that don't have a problem with alcohol. They don't think about it. They're not rationalizing it. They're not going through these mental gymnastics around, well, I'll just have one now and then I'll have one later and I got to drink it slower. And if I do all of these things, then I'm not an alcoholic. Right. Oh, it was so, so important for me not to be an alcoholic because I wasn't going to be like my stepfather and I definitely wasn't going to be like my father. So I put constraints to make sure I didn't cross that line. Not realizing if I already had that mental mindset, I'm well over the and line. I know, I know, right? And I would do the same thing. I was proving constantly to myself first and then the rest of the world that I'm not an addict, I'm not an alcoholic, and here's the proof. Because I can manage it, I can control it, and I still have a job. I still have a house. I still have a car. Problem for me was over any length of time, my alcohol use would become unmanageable. And that unmanageability would present itself in any number of ways. A consequence for me, a DWI or a lost relationship divorce after divorce after divorce. And the other truth was that over any length of time, I couldn't sober by myself because that would become unmanageable. And I would become restless, irritable, and discontent. And the world felt like the problem. You felt like the problem. My wife felt like the problem. My boss felt like he was the problem. And I felt like once I got to that restlessness, irritability, and discontentedness, that my only option was to drink. And I was doing you all a favor because if I don't drink, I'm going to choke you people. I had that feeling, but I also had to drink when things are good. I felt like I was missing an opportunity if I didn't get a bottle of wine when I had something to celebrate. That was another thing is I drank in public settings and felt like a failure if I didn't drink, if the booze was free. I'm missing (laughs) an opportunity. I have to drink in this situation because it's there. When am I going to get another situation like this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Although those kinds of situations were a little dicey for me because I had put myself in a number of situations in public where I made a bit of a fool of myself by drinking too much. So I tried to sort of rein it in, in those public settings and just couldn't wait till I got home to finish it off and drink the way I really wanted to drink. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I did that as well. That worst comes to worse. Okay. I've got a bottle of something at home. I'll just wait until then. Cause then I can drink the way I want to. Absolutely. Like I'm fine. I'll have a few in pregame here, but I'm going to bail pretty early on this deal so I can go home 
and drink the way I want to, like you said, in private. Yeah, and then it, you can't see me. That's right. And you can't point your finger at me and call me an alcoholic because that was the worst thing anybody could ever say. That's right. And that creates this Jekyll and Hyde program that we're running. And it also made me feel like nobody knew the real me. And that if you knew the real me, if you knew what I was really like, if you knew that I was an alcoholic, you knew that I was an addict, and you knew how I really drank, you wouldn't want to hang out with me. You wouldn't want to be around me. That's a pretty awful feeling. Yeah. Well, I didn't feel that way just because of those things. If you knew the real me, regardless of alcoholism, you wouldn't want to be around me anyways. If you found out who I really was, which was a fraud. Absolutely. Felt the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of self-loathing. Yep. The alcohol for me took the edge off of that self-loathing and allowed me to escape from it, but also doubled down on it because I often did things I wasn't proud of. Yes. So, so now I have to drink afterwards to make up for the crap I did when I was drunk because I made an ass of myself. And I feel even worse about myself, which yep. reinforces this idea that you wouldn't like me if you knew the real me because I'm kind yeah. of a piece of crap. Yeah, that loathing of, see, I can't be left out in public. I'm going to be a fool and people will hate me. It becomes a self-fulfilling thing. I, I could identify what you said before as well with it's everybody else's fault. You know, I'm the perfect person. Why am I always in the situation where I'm around fools and morons? Yes. Never. It never occurred to me that I'm the commonality. Yes. Absolutely. I think now differently when <laughs> things are like that going on, I look and say, all right, <laughs> what is it about me? Yeah. And what do successful people do where they don't get into this? You know, if I've got a bad boss and he's not communicating, all right, what would a successful person do? They would find a way out of it. If I've got to work for this person, can I find a mentor who can give me the feedback that I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can, and, and that person no longer becomes an obstacle. I realize that once I got sober and started working the steps in order with a sponsor and I started praying to a higher power that I had no concept of, that I didn't understand, and my life started dramatically getting better. And the big things didn't change. I had the same boss. I had the same job. I had the same kids. I had the same house. Yet, my well-being and my inner peace and serenity was at a place that had never been before. I loved my job. I was very happy and grateful for my children and what I had, which was not very much when I had to start all over again seven plus years ago when I got sober. But I was very happy and content because I was doing these spiritual practices on a daily basis that fundamentally changed how I acted. And because what I was putting out 
to the world, to my boss, to my kids was fundamentally different. What I was getting back was fundamentally different. And it changed the whole game. And that was a very spiritual experience for me to understand that those actions, whether I even bought into them or not, because I didn't at the beginning, really. I just did them because my sponsor said to a jolt and Charlie kept saying, just do it and see what happens. And it changed my life. And now I know when I get restless, irritable and discontent and it feels like it's everybody else. It's me. I'm the problem. I am the problem. My co-host suggested I start going to more meetings and I did last night. And I have a problem with if I'm going to a meeting, I can go to that same meeting because I'm in a zone and I've made it a habit. But if I'm adding, it becomes a new habit and it becomes almost insurmountable. And I just said, screw it, I'm going. And I went last night, which was unusual for me, but I'm so glad that I did. That's what I find doing a little bit more because I'm not, I'm not perfect in recovery. I'm perfect in the fact I'm not drinking. But I'm not perfect in my recovery, and I'm I'm good with the fact that nobody is. You mentioned that you know things improve quickly. I didn't notice things improve quickly. It was so gradual that I didn't notice that things had changed. I'll tell you how I knew things had changed. My kids responded to me differently. Mm -hmm. They actually would come to me for things as opposed to avoiding me and just going to my wife. Now I was more involved. They would come over and give me more hugs. They would talk to me more, and it was almost strange that they're talking to me and I'm like, you never used to talk to me before. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> because something in me has changed. That's it. What you're putting out into the world is different. It's probably taken me into the last two years or so. And I found this in business and working that I put more out to how can I help other people? Even if it means that I'm going to sacrifice my own metrics because I work in, I, I'm a people leader and there's a lot of things that get recognized that if you're a people leader and you do this individual thing and hit this metric, you get recognized for it. But I'm also looking, if we have sustainable business, I have to not just do that. So there are things I'll do to help my peer who could be a competitor in some of that stuff. But if I see somebody struggling, I go in and help them. Not because of any other reason it makes me feel better. And I'm also building skills. I also learned that if you do more things to help other people, you have a job interview answer, but it also makes me feel better. And the funny thing is when I stopped being competitive and I started really just putting myself out there selflessly to help, my peers liked me a lot more. Yeah. I was a go-to person. Absolutely. They weren't telling me that I was stepping on them or saying something stupid or angering them. Absolutely. Matt, what did it take for you to get to a place where you wanted to get sober or pursue recovery? Tell me a little bit about that. I had a history in 2001 where I got 10 months dry. I didn't go to AA meetings or anything. I just was dry and my girlfriend broke up with me and I went right off and I didn't stop until 2014. And I, so I had these thoughts in my head. So watching a TV show switched at birth on ABC family at the time. And one of the characters was in recovery 
and she's given a glass of wine and encouraged to drink. And there is a look of fear on her face and a look of, I'm not doing something smart. And when the booze went into her mouth, her whole face changed. Watching that, I realized that I had a problem. I'm like, that's me. I can totally identify I have a problem. And for the first time, I thought, if I'm going to stop drinking, the least of my problems is the drinking. That's Mm. the smallest part. Everything about me needs to change. And I had a window. And I remember it felt like I was on fire. There was nothing I wanted more at that moment than, than to drink. And I didn't. And I was like, it was like holding my breath that whole time for a long period of time. I was afraid to tell people I think I have a problem because one of two things would happen and both were unacceptable. They would either say, you're being silly, then I'd feel like a fool. Or they would say, you're right, you do have a problem. And then I'd be an alcoholic. And both of them were bad. And therapist I was seeing gave me neither answer. He said, I don't know. Why don't you go to some meetings? And I'd never thought of going to a meeting because what in my mind, what meeting was, is a bunch of old homeless guys with long beers and trench coats and probably nothing underneath sitting around in a church basement with an incandescent light bulb swinging around and not much more light than that. A very depressing sight. He goes, go, what do you got to lose? I go, I'm going to be really scared. He goes, first nine times you go, you will be, but do it anyways. And just, just see, just see what happens. So I went to my first meeting. It was a beginner's meeting because I'm into hierarchy. So when you enter something like this, you get on the ground floor and you go to a beginner's meeting. And I assume they'd have a table there where there would be people who do this orientation with you. I don't know, paperwork or whatever that you'd have to fill out. And so I went to this thing. I had my nice shoes on, khakis, pressed a shirt, and I was well overdressed. Let's just say that. But I went. I didn't care for it because it was, it was closer to my interpretation of what a meeting is than not. It was wild. I eventually got in because I found a men's meeting. And when I first went, it was this big church. I didn't know how to get in. I went through like a basketball game and then there was a room for people and I stuck my head in and it was boy Scouts. And I didn't know what to say. Like, is this the AA meeting? So if I say that now you're going to know I'm an alcoholic wandering around your church, And I found the place that seemed like it was the meeting and people were loud and they were having fun and they looked like normal people. And there were a lot of people there and somebody immediately pulled me over and said, Hey, I just got a new phone. Can you help me with this? And there were a bunch of new people that night and they turned the meeting over to us and it was wild to to see. And that's, and I, that was the first time I heard somebody who said, who drank like me. It was somebody who had been sober almost 40 years at that point. He said, I'm a firefighter. I could drink one beer a night, but I was miserable if I did. And I'm like, I am finally in the right place. And once I got into a program, it never occurred to me that I could go back out and drink again. And I wouldn't, it was so painful to start going to meetings that I didn't want to have that pain again. And when I saw people going out, it, it baffled me. Because one, I thought it was a rare occurrence. Like, oh my God, somebody went out like this. How often does this happen? And like, like all the time, like all the time it happens. And it just, I couldn't understand that. So that fear up front of, of, I have to say I'm coming back again. I didn't want to do that. So it was easier not to drink. And then I made relationships with people and I didn't want to let them down. So then that was easier just not to drink than to do that. 
And so after a while of just because it was hard to get in, I threw, well, I'm a perfectionist anyway. So I was going to be the best person in the program ever. I was going to get through the steps faster than everybody else, which was, which was, so I had a spreadsheet with every step and tabs on this Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> when, you know, you learn after a while that with all these spreadsheets out there, Bill tells you how to do it in the book. It's just get a piece of paper out. Draw some lines, write some stuff down, talk to somebody about it. You don't have to make this complicated, but I was going to be the best that there ever was. <laughs> but it's just, I gave it time. And because I was going to throw myself into it, I was going to learn and I was going to get out of my comfort zone. Matt, something you said really resonated with me in that the reason you decided to go to your first meeting wasn't because you wanted to stop drinking as much as you, for the first time, really believed you were the problem, that there was a problem with you and you needed to get better. And I can absolutely relate to that. And I can absolutely identify with that because on the back end of a third divorce, when my wife at the time was forcing me to go to treatment or she was going to divorce me. I really believed for the first time that I was the problem. And up until that point, everybody else was the problem. Everybody else was the problem, not me. And I certainly didn't have a problem with alcohol. But walking into that treatment counselor's office, I believed I had a problem and I was willing to do whatever it took to get better. And if that meant not drinking, then okay, then I'll not drink. But I was just more concerned with getting well and never feeling like I had felt at that moment because I, I felt broken and I felt defeated. And I felt like I didn't know any of the answers on how to get better. And I started listening to people in these rooms that were telling my story. And there was people in there that thought like I thought, drank like I drank and did what I did. And they got better. And so then I believed I could get better if I just did what they did. They said they make their bed in the morning. I started making my bed in the morning. If they said they got down on their knees and pray, then that's what I did too. And ultimately, that was the beginning. And I agree with you. Like, I didn't want to go back out and go back in again. It sucked coming in. It was humiliating for me in the beginning. I felt lousy and I didn't want to ever feel like that again. And so the thought of going back out and having to go through that process again appealed to me 0%. Yeah, I didn't. I, I know people who are going in and out and have for years and I don't get it. It always has been a bit of a put down for me when I hear do the work, you know, service work, do the work, working the steps, because I've never looked at it as really work. In the end, the stuff that you have to do to be successful in a program, 
isn't really that much to me. You just have to be willing to do it. You have to be willing to tell somebody what your defects are. You have to be willing to make an amends to somebody that you pissed off. But as time goes by, I don't make these conscious decisions anymore. I just choose to live my life the right way and think through if I got pissed off, should I go and apologize to somebody? There are times that I've been grumpy around the house and nobody would think differently of me if I didn't go around and apologize to people for being grumpy. But I think about it. If I start feeling that twinge of, nah, I'm not behaving the way I should be behaving. You got to do something about it. That is just like that. I think of it immediately to do that. So it just becomes how I conduct myself now. Uh, it's helpful. I just had somebody who works for me come to me and said, hey, because of your example, I'm checking myself into rehab. Oh, man. It was an awesome feeling to hear. And I'm rooting for this. This is a great guy. And I am rooting. And it's like, there's not many instances I can think of where people have said that. But hearing that, I was like, wow, I must be doing the right thing. Absolutely. And that's the opportunities we're afforded when we choose to recover out loud and try to be the best example of recovery we can be on a given day. And for me, man, sometimes that's better than others. But the reality is, is that's my goal, is to recover out loud and to be the best example of recovery I can be on a given day. And if I do that, I'm afforded opportunities to be able to share my experience, strength and hope and recovery is going to look attractive to people that may be contemplating recovery themselves from any thing, not just alcohol. Yeah. People like you and I, we may be the only people that somebody who's thinking about putting the bottle down may see. And I take that seriously. I'm like, please don't act like a jerk. Please don't say something (laughs) stupid because I don't want to hurt this guy. It's constantly in the back of my mind that I better be putting the right foot out there. Absolutely. And the opportunity for you to be able to help other people in recovery is really taking the next level in the Sober Friends podcast. And you mentioned you started it during the pandemic as sort of a solution to be able to put something out there that can help people who are trying to find recovery in a really difficult environment because of the pandemic. We were all forced to isolate, which is super counterproductive when it comes to what we're trying to do in recovery, which is connect to other people in recovery and get well together. It's a we thing and we get better together. And the pandemic worked against that in many ways and inspired you to start the Sober Friends podcast. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I did a podcast before it. So I had all the equipment. And the podcast I was doing before was much more vapid and it came to a lousy end. It was a fan podcast of somebody else. And I ran afoul of the person who was doing the fan podcast of and decided I don't need this, but I got this equipment and I've got it in my head 
that I wanted to do this anyways. And I thought it would be pretty easy because I remember when I got sober, there was only a handful of podcasts out there. Well, I went in and found out there were thousands of them and there were some <laughs> really good ones that I was going to have to step up my game. And it just started as sort of interviews. I ran, I had a hard time getting interviews. So I brought in some friends. I'm like, maybe we can just do some discussion topics. And that seemed to click. So it has evolved over time into what it is now, where it's kind of a group. It really is a bunch of alcoholics sitting around in a coffee bar, just shooting the bull. That's the, that's what we attempt to do. And talking about a recovery topic of, we just, we just have this roundtable discussion every once in a while, we're lucky enough to have a guest in and all of us just kind of invite the guest in as sort of like that temporary fourth co-host at times. And it seems to be working. I was terrified of doing it because I was terrified that the old timers would wag their finger and say, the traditions, you can't do this because I am around a lot of people who don't like the Zoom stuff. So this is an aside I'll go on because it's associated with the podcast. The pandemic was great in some ways that it spawned creativity and innovation. There are people out there now who have gotten sober just on Instagram, just by listening to podcasts. Uh, AA does not own the recovery world. Absolutely. And Bill has talked about that. There are many other ways. Absolutely. And I have become a big proponent of, you know, get the message out there that something like a podcast can be a great addendum and extra credit that you can listen to when you need it. If you're not feeling great or you feel you need some recovery, you can throw on a podcast and listen for a little bit and you're surrounded by listening to other people, even if you don't listen to the whole thing. It's there for you when you need it. It's an excuse buster. I love the fact that Zoom meetings are around at any time. I was asked to speak on one Monday at 1 p.m. at a newcomer Zoom meeting and there were 85 people there. And this thing was highly engaged. And so there are people who only go to Zoom meetings and have really good sobriety and that's all they know. So it really frustrates me when I hear people say, ah, you got to get back to in-person you got to do it the way it used to be and get the papers. And no, I, I don't want, I, I don't want to get rid of in-person meetings, but I don't want to get rid of the other things that have come about because it's an opportunity to meet people where they are. And that's what I look at sobriety podcasting is there's, there's so many podcasts out there that you can have your own niche. There are non-AA podcasts or podcasts about the scientific method of why you get, why you drink. And I think the more that's out there, the better, because you have an opportunity that if you can just find your sweet spot and say, this is what I enjoy and I feel good doing this, somebody will pick it up and it will make a difference for them. Absolutely. And I really believe the more voices out there that are recovering out loud, the better. And I don't believe in either or. I believe in and. Yeah, exactly. That we can have in-person meetings and virtual video meetings. We can have in-person meetings and podcasts. We could have in-person meetings and speaker tapes. Back in the day when there wasn't podcasts on demand, there was speaker tapes that people listened to. There was Joe and Charlie, as we've talked about. 
And I very much agree with meeting people where they are. Many people are terrified to go to an in-person meeting. And they have the ability now to be able to listen to a podcast and be able to relate and identify and learn and grow. There's people that there isn't any in-person meetings within 50 or 100 miles of them. And virtual meetings and podcasts are a tremendous resource if you're in that kind of a situation. So it's not either or, it's and. And I believe that with recovery pathways too. It's not just 12 step. Smart recovery, celebrate recovery, refuge recovery, great programs and offer a lot. And if you can find your particular niche where it feels like home to you, go for it. I know what I believe the gold standard is, but I am open to other pathways. And I think we have to be thinking more that way. I am get concerned when people say, hey, you got to go to AA. It's the only way. It doesn't do AA any favors. I agree. I absolutely agree. Matt, we've got some closing questions. Are you ready? Ready. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? I at least say a small prayer. I got out of praying for a while because I made it into a big thing that I at least close my eyes. And if I have nothing better to say, I say, just help me get through this day. Help me help another person. Podcasting is part of it. Listening to podcasts, going to meetings, talking to people. I will say I feel a little guilty going through that. I'm like, wow, I'm a little too Spartan with this. I will say what's part of my recovery is a living amends. I had a sponsor who told me, focus first on your family. And so just doing nice things for the family are part of my routine, going and doing the dishes, helping the kids with breakfast, taking them on my day off to school. The things that I do that are good for other people are part of staying sober. And that's being of service. For me, being of service isn't just limited to being of service in a 12-step recovery program. It's being of service to my girlfriend by doing the dishes. It's being of service to my kids, to my son, to people at work. And I'm also with leadership. And I very much take a servant leadership approach in my leadership. And if I can be of service to you, then I am embodying the principles that I learned in the rooms and in the program of the 12 steps. And we're supposed to take that out of the rooms. That's the whole idea. So we're supposed to take that out into our homes and our workplaces in small acts of service that mean a lot to people and make a big difference. And I agree with simplifying. I also got to a place where I was very elaborate around my prayer and meditation routine. And I very much simplified it over the last six months. And that's made a big difference for me because it's less about how much I do or how elaborate it is and much more about how intentional 
and mindful I can be in it. If I'm just going through the motions and checking the boxes and I'm not present in it, it's not doing me any good. Right. Or it becomes all or nothing. If I can't do all this stuff, I just won't do it at all. Right. So it's sort of like if I can't get on the bike for 30 minutes, if I spin the wheels for 10 minutes, that's a lot better than what I was doing. Maybe I can build a new habit. Indeed. What book or piece of recovery literature or quit lit, as the cool kids call it, had the biggest impact on your recovery? There's two. There's the one I'm reading now, and there's the one that I read when I first got sober. So when I first got sober, it was Living Sober. If you are first getting sober, Living Sober to me is more important and more beneficial than the big book because it's like cotton candy. You can get something practical that you need on every single page, and it's an easy read. Today, I'm reading Writing the Big Book, which is big, big, big. And it goes through a real definitive history of what was happening when the big book got written. And it's great because it debunks a bunch of things that we think. There are some things that Bill was doing. So the whole thing that is amazing to me is we look at Dr. Bob's second in command. At the time, that really wasn't the case. He was a guy who was kind of passive and he was in Ohio and he was far away. Nobody talks about Hank Parkhurst. If Hank Parkhurst had stayed sober, he would be on the coin with Bill, but he didn't. So we don't talk about Hank anymore, but hearing those stories and hearing how the book came about and that in a lot of ways, Bill was a salesman and the big book was not a manual. It was sales material. I'm a big believer that if Bill was around today, he'd have a podcast, he'd have a YouTube channel because that's the best media to spread the message. At the time, it was a book and creating a book was the best way to go. So I am enjoying that because I need to know what was going on between the lines so I understand what the message is, so I can filter out what's myth, what's not, and what's really important. A big history guy, I am indeed. So all of that appeals to me very, very much. What is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery? This too shall pass. I don't want to believe that in the time, and I almost want to slug people when they say it. But when I have some real big issues, this too shall pass is important because every single time when I have a bad time going, it does. It goes away. I don't think about it. I received some good feedback. We talked about this earlier, earlier in the week where I was told, maybe you should go to some more meetings. You don't have to pick up an extra meeting. If you go to one, if you pick up extra meetings, it doesn't mean you go to the same one each week, just pick up a few. But I always feel better that when I'm in a bad place, going to a few extra meetings has always helped. And it does. It always helps to me. I get out of myself and I realize I have more time than I think I do to do this stuff. (laughs) That is true. And we make time for what's important to us. Oh, I can make time for the uh, the games that are on my phone. I can spend hours doing that, gaming (laughs) alcoholically. Absolutely. No doubt about it. What is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery? It is time balancing. So I've got three kids. When I got sober, I had a newborn and my wife was not as agreeable for me going to all these meetings. She had said to me, you know, when do you not have to go to these anymore? Like when do you graduate? 
And I'm like, oh dear, we have a problem. That was the biggest challenge of getting family understanding to why this is important. Mm-hmm. I've overcome that. That when I say I got to go to a meeting, there's understanding to the point that there are some times that I'm told, why don't you go to a meeting? (laughs) Been there. Yeah. 100%. If you, if you're new and you're having that problem, give it time. It takes a lot longer sometimes than you think it's going to, or it should, but you got to give it time. When you get better, people will see that that's the treatment that works and they'll accept it. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And I'm very fortunate. My girlfriend is in recovery, but my kids very much were, you still go to those? You still have to go? You know, so they get it today and that's great, but not at the beginning necessarily. What is your greatest success in recovery? Oh, you're, you're hitting me with these questions again. Uh Staying sober eight years is pretty successful. I, I'd say my greatest success is the fact that the kids treat me differently. They treat me better. They like having me around. I was trained to tell people when the kids say, why do you go to a meeting? I say, so I can be a better daddy. And one time my daughter turned around and said, but you already are a great daddy. And I said, that's why I'm a great daddy. Mm. I would say those are the things that are the greatest successes is the fact that people see the change. Absolutely. And being able to build these relationships, which that's what this thing is all about. To want to have those relationships. If somebody wants to isolate, to have that desire, or when I don't have the desire to look and say, program says I should stop what you're doing. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or somebody else for? I struggle with my stepfather, who I don't really talk to. We talked for a bit after my mother passed away, and then I drifted away again. And I feel guilty at times that he's not part of my kid's life, but he's a very toxic individual. And I have to be talked into, it's okay for you not to have a relationship with this person because he's really toxic. And on the same set, on the same hand, I have trouble forgiving him because he was very emotionally abusive to my mother and to me over time. And it's tough to get past that. I'm in my head a lot about this gentleman. And that's real. It's just real. And ultimately, because we are in recovery, we have the ability to be able to continue to have opportunities to work through that stuff. I have zero chance of getting through any of this if I'm still active in my addiction and alcoholism. Oh, agreed. But in recovery, I have opportunities to practice forgiveness and I have opportunities to be able to apply these principles to these difficult situations that are not one and done. I can't count how many times I thought I was done with a resentment or some other issue and it crops back up again. And I am blessed with a renewed opportunity to practice some principles. Yeah, I agree. Totally. That's the other thing is I've added years to my life. I'd probably be dead at a certain point and I have extra time to do good things. Absolutely. 
you and I have a very similar sobriety date. That yeah, sounds like it. Right. Because I Short am story and date. Right. Right. Absolutely. Because I'm December 6, 2014. So. Okay. I've just got a couple months on you. Yeah. In the ballpark. We would have been getting <laughs> monthly chips at the same time. Exactly. We would, yeah, man. We would have been kind of in it together in the beginning. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Last question. And this one is definitely the funnest of all of them. What song symbolizes recovery to you, Matt? <laughs> wow. I'm going to go with uh, Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, I guess, because I just heard that song today and it's the one that comes up to my head the quickest. I absolutely love that. And you're not the first one that has recommended that song as a song that reminds them and symbolizes recovery to them. And I totally get that. What a tremendous song. Yeah. Don't you feel like you could just conquer the world when you listen to that that song? Yeah, it was Hulk Hogan's first theme song. And that's what I think of. And like (laughs) now that I'm sober, I'm like the Hulkster, like the Hulkster brother. I'm coming after you, alcohol, dude. (laughs) I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much, brother. No, for this has been this. a pleasure. Yeah, this has been great. Every time I'm able to have another brother in recovery, sister in recovery, come on and have an amazing discussion is an absolute blessing. And I'm always reminded of so many things. I learn new things. It's been an absolute treat. Yeah, this has been a joy for me. Real honor. Make sure to check out the Sober Friends podcast. I think that's amazing having a topic-based discussion with other sober folks. That's great. We have done plenty of topic episodes, and we will have some more on our end coming up. I love that format. It's such a great format because it feels like you're just having a conversation with your friends that are in recovery. And that's an amazing thing. And we can learn so many things about recovery and about ourselves when we have these kinds of discussions. So make sure to check the show notes because we will have link outs to Sober Friends podcast. And we will have Matt's book recommendation, his recovery advice, his song recommendation. All of that is in the show notes. So check the show notes right now for all of that amazing information. Matt, thanks again for being on the way out podcast and recovering out loud with us. Oh, thank you, Charlie, for having me. And thank you, everybody out there in way out podcast land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of the way out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, 
your sobriety date will.